Sarah. Hi, Alison. Uh, another spotlight on France. Another week starting with coronavirus. France isn't quite in lockdown mode, but it kind of feels like we're maybe heading that way. We should find out a bit more at 8 p.m. this evening, Thursday, because President Emmanuel Macron is going to be making a televised address to the nation. Everyone imagines he's going to be talking about coronavirus. Yeah, yeah. And one of the questions is what will happen with local elections? The mm. first round is Sunday. I mean, will he postpone them? Who knows? Already polling stations are putting various measures into place. They're going to have sanitizer gel for everyone, if you like. Um, some are going to have single-use pens for you to put your crosses with. Um, but it's not that reassuring to older voters, who, of course, are rather vulnerable. And they're the ones who usually turn out in the biggest numbers in these elections. So recent polls suggest that more than a third of voters might not show up because they are afraid of the virus, which is quite a lot of people. And it will raise questions about the legitimacy of the results. So lots of questions. Some of those might be answered this evening. But in the meantime, campaigning does continue in more than 35,000 cities, towns and villages across the country. 35,000. So many mayors. As a reminder, these elections are going to elect some half a million local councillors, over 500,000 people. And each local council will then choose its mayor. And here in France, mayors are by far the most popular of the elected officials. And in small towns, at least, people usually know know their mayor personally and he or in a few cases she uh, has a budget uh, to deal with a lot of things that have an impact on daily life. Yeah, they, they have a lot on their plate. They, they run and finance primary schools. Um, they organize uh, local transport, trash collection, um, even deal with urban planning with like permitting and that kind of thing. Exactly. And you need a fair amount of energy to handle all of that to be a mayor. And many of them are not very young. The oldest mayor, by the way, in France is 98 years Whoa. old and he's running for for a 10th term. Oh my goodness. I know. And the average age overall is 57. So it's not that much of a young profession. There are fewer than 4% of mayors under the age of 40. Young people are not exactly queuing up for the job, especially in rural areas. But some are younger. And France's youngest mayor is 25 years old. His name is Rémy Digue. He's mayor of Florange, uh, a town with a population of 12,000, over in eastern France, not far from the border with Luxembourg. I joined him on the campaign trail to find out just what he likes about the job and why he's running for re-election. Rémi Dick is out canvassing door-to-door in a fairly middle-class district of Florange. Undeterred by the pouring rain, he marches along, umbrella in one hand, leaflets in the other, smartly dressed and with a permanent smile. A well-heeled woman in her 50s opens the door to her large house and looks rather surprised to see the young mayor. They discuss the extensive renovation work the mayor and his team have undertaken in the neighborhood. The roads have been completely resurfaced. You're doing a wonderful job, she says. He has a lot of new ideas. He's not as tired as the, well, the other ones. Further down the road, an elderly man leans out of his upstairs window to greet the mayor as he knocks on his door. I've already prepared my list. I'm 87 years old, he shouts. I ask him what he thinks of the young mayor. 
He has a cheerful face for a start, says the old man, not like some. His son, Jérôme, has stopped by for lunch. I think the fact he's young means he's not afraid of throwing himself into things, he says. The older ones weigh up the for and against, and then they, well, they err on the side of caution. And when I make mistakes, I admit to it, the mayor says. The local post lady stops her bike to moan about cars driving too fast. She and the mayor chat about the merits of building speed bumps. Some people are for, the others are against, says the mayor, but he'll look into it. Remy Dick clearly has the gift of the gab and seems at ease as he goes round shaking hands. He got his taste for politics with former right-wing president Nicolas Sarkozy. He was drawn by his 2007 campaign slogan, Work More to Earn More. Dick says he remains on the conservative right, but he knows that in local politics you have to be able to get on with people with very different political affiliations. We return to the warmth of the mayor's rather cluttered office at Florange Town Hall, where two huge French tricolore flags stand at the ready for official ceremonies. Rémy Dick has occupied this office since 2016. He wasn't elected, but he was thrust into the post when the mayor at the time suddenly resigned. The other members of the local council decided it was time for a radical change, and they pushed Dick, who was then aged 22, to the fore. Personne ne voulait le poste. Nobody wanted the post, so they turned to me. I was the youngest, studying at university at the time. Some thought I was a credible choice, and I had the support of a leading figure in my political group. He had a lot of authority, and when he chose to put his trust in a young person, well, the others followed. Dick had been a member of the local council for two years, and very active in local and student politics from the age of 15, but he'd never held office. It was very difficult stepping into the mayor's shoes at the helm of running a town of 12,000 residents. It was a tumultuous beginning, the first six months in particular. Every day I asked myself what I was doing there, why I got into it. I had to earn respect from my staff. I'm an employer, after all, in charge of some 200 public sector workers. I had to give them instructions, and it took time to have the necessary authority for them to respect me as an employer, but also as their mayor. He remembers his first disastrous speech. My worst moment was the very day after the town council elected me. I had to give a speech at the annual celebration for firefighters known as Sainte Barbe. I didn't know the firefighters. I didn't know the institution, the staff or the subject. I turned up in a short-sleeved shirt without a tie. I didn't know the dress code. My speech was pathetic. I can see that now. Rémy Dick has gradually earned legitimacy through hard work, and people have also started to understand that he held the purse strings, handing out or withdrawing subsidies for the town's many different associations, which are such an important part of daily life. He made some radical decisions, but which in the end went down well. At the 2018 New Year's address, just over a year after getting the job, he says he felt he'd finally gained legitimacy. Several local people came to me to say, Mr. Mayor, 
After that speech, you are no longer the young mayor, you're simply the mayor. It was the moment I finally felt I'd grown wings, when I felt I was up to the task. As well as handling budgets, the mayor deals with things like urban planning, including issuing building permits, primary schools, roads, local transport, public health and rubbish collection, basically ensuring the day-to-day quality of life. Remy Dick is still a student at the elite political science institute, but in the run-up to the elections, studies have gone on the back burner. Being mayor and a student is compatible outside election campaigns, but here we are in the midst of campaigning and I admit I've skipped classes. Every available moment is spent preparing and distributing leaflets and going canvassing every day. In normal times, he works as mayor Monday through to Friday, 9 to 5. Plus, there are the meetings and general assemblies and functions on top of that. He's paid €1,500 a month, barely more than the minimum wage for a full-time job. But there are added perks, and he gets a huge sense of satisfaction. What drives me, above all else, is that I can have an impact on things. If you're committed, you can improve people's daily lives. Everything you do counts. You realize that the energy you put into something is not in vain. Florange is a steel town, or was, with the demise of steel and factory closures. One out of eight people in town is now unemployed. Dick's powers as mayor don't cover employment policy, but he does take great pride in trying to give a positive image of his town to help attract outside investment, in part to redress some of the clichés. People in Florange have had enough of being held up as a symbol of the deindustrialization of France. We were sick that every time a journalist came, the town was portrayed as something out of Hugo's Germinal, a dirty, industrial, negative French town. We want to reverse that. Florange is still an industrial town. We have 4,400 jobs in industry, and we should be proud of it. Rémi Dick sounds like an MP in the making, and being a mayor can be a springboard for getting into national politics. But he says it's much too early to be thinking about that. I enjoy politics, and I like serving people more than ideas. I'm not making any projections for the moment. What's the point of looking to get elected at national level if I don't yet know whether or not people in Florange want to put their trust in me? So there's a mayor with lots of energy, the energy of youth. (laughs) Exactly. Whether or not he wins, who knows. But he certainly brought a breath of fresh air into the contest. And interestingly, because he got so much media attention for being France's youngest mayor, it's had a positive knock-on effect. Mm. And the two rivals for this election are both new and rather dynamic too. One of the lists is led by a 26-year-old of Algerian descent, and the other list is led by a woman. And if she won, she would be the town's first female mayor. So youngsters and women, that's all good news for fresh new local politics in France. Now we're going to turn our attention, Alison, to absinthe. That's the green liquor that drives you mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's its reputation. So on March 17th, 1915, 105 years ago, France banned the production and consumption of absinthe. This was in response to what it said was its impact on soldiers in the trenches of the First World War. 
Now, absinthe is a botanical spirit. It's made with the flowers and leaves of the Artemisia absinthium, or wormwood, along with fennel and anise and other herbs. It started as a medicinal drink, um, an all-purpose remedy, in the 18th century in Switzerland. And a Swiss businessman, Daniel-Henri Dupied, acquired the recipe, started selling it as a spirit in 1797. His son-in-law and business partner, Henri-Louis Pernot, opened his own distillery on the other side of the border in France a few years later in 1805. Pernod's absinthe stayed a regional drink, but it was quite popular. But it expanded when it became recommended to French soldiers who were in Algeria, part of the colonization process. In 1830, they were recommended to use it against malaria, digestive problems. And when the soldiers came back, they had a taste for it. Mm. By the 1880s, absinthe had become mass-produced, the price dropped, and sometimes it was less than a glass of wine. And it became a popular drink across the whole spectrum of social classes. Yeah, by 1910, the French were drinking 36 million liters of absinthe each year. It sounds like a lot, and it is a lot, though, of course, you compare that to the 5 billion liters of wine being consumed at the same time. It does make it kind of relative. But absinthe became quite popular amongst the bohemian artists and writers of the Belle Epoque in the early 20th century. People like Paul Verlaine, for example. Yeah, yeah. And, and absinthe allegedly had psychotropic properties. You had Oscar Wilde, who called it the Green Fairy, and he wrote about the effects that, that gave him the feeling of having tulips brushing up against his legs, quite poetic. It is. <laughs> so absinthe was blamed for driving Vincent van Gogh and Toulouse-Lautrec crazy, and it became associated with social disorder, violent crime. It is very strong stuff. Historically, it was bottled up to 74% of alcohol by volume, sometimes even higher. And it was assumed that the wormwood made it more dangerous than ordinary alcohol. Wormwood does contain a compound called tujone, which does have hallucinogenic properties. Switzerland ended up banning absinthe in 1908. This was a constitutional amendment. France banned it by decree in 1915. It was also banned in the U.S. and other European countries. Now, the ban ran Pernod out of business, though his son started making an anise-flavored liquor with a lower alcohol content. By 1932, France had re-allowed anise-flavored drinks, not absinthe, but Paul Ricard, a young man from Marseille in the south of France, introduced his own liquor, calling it pastis. It has become the aperitif drink in the south of France, especially drunk with water, usually, and of course with moderation. Yeah, yeah, so the absinthe being the ancestor of pastis. In the 1980s and 90s, France did loosen the rules on the use of wormwood extracts in foods by 2011 it had allowed the use of the name absinthe again. And today we're seeing a resurgence, a kind of liquor with mystery. Um, there are 15 distilleries in France that produce 800,000 liters of absinthe a year. Scientific studies do show that the psychoactive properties of Tujon, that wormwood property, were probably a bit exaggerated. The negative effects of absinthe were probably due to the abuse of alcohol more than anything else. Alison, how many billionaires do you think there are in France? I have no idea, but I do know that I'm not one of them. <laughs> well, the number is around 40, 38 to 40. It's Forbes magazine that makes this, this ranking each year around the world. The United States and China have more, of course. There are about 600 billionaires in the U.S., 475 in China. Mm. Um, here in Europe, Germany, the U.K., and Italy actually have more than in France. But the accumulated wealth of these French billionaires is higher. 
I guess the richest French are richer than their European counterparts. Goodness me, people like Bernard Arnault. Yeah, yeah, who's occasionally the richest man in the world. I But say occasionally. <laughs> well, it, it depends on the stock market, actually. Arnault is the head of the LVMH group. Depending on how stocks are going, it's either he or Jeff Bezos of Amazon, who's the richest man in the world.、Um, France also lays claim to the richest woman in the world, Liliane Betancourt, the heiress to the L'Oréal fortune. So this being France, it sounds like wealth is really in the luxury sector. Yeah, definitely, and a lot of the billionaires are in that sector. Though,、yeah. a lot of them come out of industry. Probably people we we generally don't hear of in the news.、Uh, Sarah, having super wealthy people like this in France seems a little counterintuitive, doesn't it? Because France has the, at least a reputation for favoring egalitarianism, for wanting things to be a little bit more equal,、mm-hmm. and of course has、uh, quite high taxes for the very rich. Yeah, yeah, but it turns out there's a lot happening behind the scenes. Olivier Petitjean is a journalist with the French multinational Observatory, and he worked on a report with European counterparts to look at European billionaires, how they made their money, what rules and regulations they use or bend to make that money.、Um, and I spoke with him about what they found. He started by giving me a bit of an overview of these French billionaires,、um, besides Bernard Arnault. A lot of them are heirs or heiresses to、uh, corporate empires. Very few new wealth, like you have in the U.S., for instance. There's a lot of wealth built on agriculture. So, for instance, Lactalis, the global leader in dairy, and、uh, it's not a, on the stock exchange. So, it's really a wealth that's interesting because he's so Andre Beignet. His wealth is not based on the on the market. So, it's in a way, it's more solid. He's bought out a lot of dairy companies. In France first, and now he's starting to buy out dairy companies in the rest of Europe, and now with a big trade agreements with、uh, the rest of the world in Canada and the U.S. So it's really wealth built by a monopoly. So in France, you have these billionaires. Comparing, I don't know, to the rest of Europe, maybe to the rest of the world, are there more or less in the general population if we're looking at percentage-wise? If you look at、uh, number of billionaires by head of population, I think it's still below the U.S. and、uh, China, for instance. When you look at equality indexes, it's still more equal. But what's interesting, of course, is that it's there are more billionaires in France than in other countries in Europe, for instance. And France has an image of being a very egalitarian country. Well, France also has this image of being a kind of anti-business way of like too much taxation, and then you actually have these people who have amassed a lot of wealth. What about France has enabled this to happen? I suppose you could say there's a sort of a French hypocrisy in the way that、uh, we like to project the image of being egalitarian. But when you look at the tax issue, there there are a lot of niches that allow rich people like that to pay less taxes. There was a big controversy a couple years ago when the president François Hollande decided he was going to put on what was it 80% tax, 75% a 75% tax on incomes of a million or more, and so it was a big deal of like, okay, we're going to penalize, we're going to I- encourage rich people to contribute more. Yeah, well, it's very symbolic, and actually, it wasn't implemented for reason of legal reasons. But then, of course, when Macron was elected, the, one of the first things is, it, he did was to suppress the wealth tax, which is also very symbolic. When you look at those people, they generate their money through their corporations, which have subsidiaries in Luxembourg, Netherlands, not to mention other tax havens, and they generate their money through real estate or. Things like that that makes the income tax not as relevant as it would seem to be. So it's interesting you say it's symbolic because looking at the French 
psyche, I guess, and this idea that you have to seem as though you're against wealth, even though there is a lot of it. I think there's a long history of the French Republic and the French elites working either together or against each other, and it dates back probably back to the French Revolution where all the aristocrats went away, and it's played repeatedly, and there are times where the French Republic, in a way, egalitarian spirit, asserts itself. And I think now at the moment, especially in the context of a business-friendly government and the fact that the government doesn't have as much money to spend, the role of the wealthy comes back, you know, with a bang. Now we're almost at the anniversary of the Notre Dame fire. And uh, of course, there was a big debate because a lot of those wealthy Frenchmen said, we're going to put money into rebuilding Notre Dame. Ne- nearly a billion euros raised. Yeah, and there was a big backlash for a number of reasons. First, because it was a symbol of the fact that, you know, of course, the government didn't have the money. And of course, it was symbolic of the way, in a way, all those billionaires were really happy to say, look at me, I can do it. There's also <laughs> issues of tax breaks, because there was a lot of questions about how much money they were actually going to be giving. Exactly. And that's, the bi- of course, a big issue is that there's a tax break for uh, donations. That's the problem with all those uh, policies of uh, cutting taxes and uh, encouraging sponsorships and donations is that actually often you find that uh, the government, if it kept the money <laughs> through tax, could actually do the same without uh, billionaires being able to say we're doing it and get all the merits for it. Donations in France are kind of complicated. At least in the United States, it's a different kind of funding structure for charities and arts. There is a lot of solicitation of individuals, wealthy and not, for supporting things. In France, we don't have that tradition. But on a wealthy level, the mécénat, this idea of donations, that does happen quite a lot. It's definitely growing. So the, the law on uh, donation mécénat was passed in 2003, the law that created up to 66% tax break. And at the same time, there's been a movement of decreasing public budgets. So I would say definitely it's become more important for uh, cultural institutions to get money, you know, the donations, seeking donations is becoming more central. And most of it, probably because there's a bit of a shyness about uh, the individual, the rich man or woman, <laughs> Most of it is channeled through corporate foundations. In the context of the study you did on, on European billionaires, it seemed as though when you're looking at the very wealthy in other countries, you have different contexts. Maybe it's different relationships with the governments. Maybe it's just different business relationships. Can you give a little overview of the, sort of what you found? There's definitely a big difference. First, the main difference is between the West and the East of Europe. In the West of Europe, you have billionaires which are more connected to business than they might venture into politics. In Eastern Europe, you have those new billionaires that are more closely connected to politics. In Eastern Europe, we have really this sort of disturbing pattern of uh, EU subsidies that have been sort of lavished uh, indiscriminately on those countries into public projects, and the governments tend to give it to friends of government. So it creates this new wealth that's really based on EU subsidies. What's interesting is the the relationship between wealth and and power. I mean, in France, maybe not so much, although you see a lot of wealthy people owning newspapers. You have uh, Serge Dassault, who ran the huge armament company, or weapons and aviation company, and he actually was in parliament. It's interesting because it's true that compared, for instance, to U.S. billionaires, European billionaires don't have such a high political commitment. But looking at it, digging a bit deeper, we find that actually a lot of them are involved in politics in sometimes in direct ways, like mostly in France. Uh, but uh, it's, it is important because, as you said, uh, the French media, 90% of it is owned by a handful of uh, 
corporations or persons that are billionaires or corporations connected to billionaires. And Bernard Arnault owns the main uh, economic daily in France, Les Echos. The Pinot family, so it's the other luxury group, owns Le Point. And when you look at what those, uh, especially Le Point at the moment, uh, the headlines, it's really political. And of course, there's also a history of connections between uh, the billionaires and uh, the political leaders. It was very obvious at the time of Nicolas Sarkozy, who, when he got elected, celebrated in a very famous dinner at the Fouquet with all uh, the richest people in France. But it still goes now, maybe a bit more discreet. But there is a, a strand, it's not very always very open, but it, there is a strand of a, a close relationship between the wealthy and the people in power, definitely. Would you say, like, in France, people just say, well, this is how it's always been, and let's just accept it? Or do, you, do is there a shift in attitudes? Or is it really just business as usual? It's always been something contested in the French society, and there is still strong resistance in the French public ethos about the power of the wealthy and... Yeah, there's definitely uh, culturally a strain of saying, uh, oh yeah, well, money is not everything. Even, so even, not even though so much of the conversation in politics is purchasing power, you know, you had the Yellow Vest movement that was a lot about, I mean, it wasn't about money per se, but it was about inequality. And there's a lot, mon money is there, it's just not as overtly talked about, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's, of course, it's there, but there's a, sort of a, still a slight taboo about seeking money just for seeking money, I guess. I suppose you, you, I think you see that in other countries, but it's still it's particularly strong in France. We're definitely not in a moment in France where there's a move towards reducing the power of wealth. It seems like right now we're in a political environment where this is actually being encouraged. Well, as you know, the situation in France is very volatile. But I would say compared to, for instance, the beginning of the mandate of Emmanuel Macron, where there was really a moment, a bit like at the beginning of Nicolas Sarkozy, uh, saying, oh yeah, wealth is good, let's be more business friendly. Because of the gilets jaunes and the general unpopularity of Emmanuel Macron, there's been a bit of a he's sort of toned down that uh, rhetoric. He's more defensive on the defensive than he was, but it could swing back. We don't know what's going to happen politically in two years. Either we could see somebody elected that's going to reinstitute taxes on billionaires, suppress tax breaks on donations, or we could see a billionaire run for elections as we've seen in other countries. I'm not sure which ones, but maybe it might happen. So that brings an end to this week's edition of Spotlight on France. Hope you enjoyed the programme. You can go and listen to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us online at rfienglish.com. If you want to send us a note, it's spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week. Bye-bye.